Um, I'm Peggy. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, through the grace of God and fellowship of people like you and sponsorship, I have been sober since February the 4th, 1964, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, I want to thank you for having me to the conference. It's always a, a privilege to be at a place like this, and I want to thank Cliff for introducing me and Gordon and um, Debbie and everyone who has been so kind to me up to this point. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll continue to be. And who and Deb, I think, made the baskets, and I just, like, made a pig of myself out of this basket. And I, you know, you could overdose on the amount of chocolate that was in it, I know, for sure. And uh, I get to do this. Um, I get to do this. You know, one of the things that I have these people that I sponsor who are uh, – they're really kind of whiners, you know, a lot. Not all of them, but some of them are really whining. And I know when I'm doing something wrong that that I know I ought not to be doing, or if I'm carrying on about something I ought not to be carrying on about, my sponsor's voice always sounds kind of like this. You know, that kind of thing, because I don't want to hear the words, but... You know, I know what she's saying kind of thing. Well, what they have, what a lot of these, what we have, what a lot of us have today are not the same problems that we had when we got sober. They are of the same nature of problem, but they are not the same problems. What I have today, what they have today are problems of abundance. I have what I like to call high-class problems. And I'll tell you, having an overload of chocolate in a basket at a conference in Winnipeg, Canada, in the middle of winter, is an overload of abundance. I mean, I used to be concerned about whether I was going to make it to the bathroom on time. or not. Well, I still am sometimes now, actually, to come to think about it, you know. The older you get, the more you have to make these split-second decisions. Do I or don't? Oh, I better go. And uh, so I am truly blessed. And when I think about the fact that on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, I will have been sober for 40 years, I just absolutely cannot believe it. And I'll tell you something. I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I would not be able to, I mean, I can't do this myself. She's laughing at me. I can't do this myself. I cannot stay sober for 40 years myself. But that's not the idea, is it? We can. We can. And and that's the deal, is that we can. I cannot, I can't, I, you know, isn't it weird? I always wanted to do everything by myself. You know, I'm, I'm German. You know, my, my maiden name was Fletcher. I mean, originally it was Von Plesner. I mean, that's not, you can't get a whole lot more German than, look at my fingers. I mean, these are German fingers. You know, we got German, little fat German legs. You know, I'm just German, you know. Von Plesner. I mean, that's a German kind of person. And Germans do it themselves. And when that guy was singing My Way last night, you know, that's the AA theme song. You know, I mean, it's like 
yeah, we did it our way, and look where we ended up, you know? I mean, this is, it's got to always be about me, you know? It's a me, wah, quadraphonic, wah, or in German, mine. Um, and, and, you know, I think, in my case anyway, that certainly is part of the origin of my alcoholism, because it always really was, ever and ever, forever and a day, about me. And uh, so, you know, when you're German and you're stubborn, and you want to do it your way, uh, I tended to have a lot of trouble in the world, because there are other people in it. <laughs> And other people object when we insist upon having it our way. And so I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and <laughs> they said, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, they didn't say this exactly, but this is what I heard. No, 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 our way. No, 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 Ma! Ma! Me! Mine! Miss Piggy! Miss Piggy! Didn't you? Do you ever... You know who Miss Piggy is? You know Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy. Who has the little sweeping back her hair and she wears these things, you know. And Miss Piggy. That's me. I mean, it is... You know, if you multiply Miss Piggy by a hundred times... That's me. I want to do it because, see, see, I have been given this gift of knowing truth for everybody. Not just for me, but for everybody. I know the right... I have an awful lot of Al-Anon in me. You know, there's... I have a... I know truth. I know how to do it. I know what's right for you. I know what's right for me. I know what's right for the dog. You know, I know it's a gift. It's a gift. And I would try to explain to people, but don't you understand? I've been given this vision that this is the right thing to do. And they would say, I don't think so. You know, well, this is the way I've been doing stuff for all this time. And, you know, let's try it this way. And I got to Alcoholics Anonymous at 25. And they said, why don't you do it our way? Well... I came at exactly the right time. And those of us who get here and stay here, I think we have an exactly the right time. Pat was talking about grace notes yesterday. And this, this is a grace note. We ha I had to be at exactly the right place, in exactly the right frame of mind, in exactly the right circumstances, feeling exactly as I did, in order for me to do the greatest, to take the action that I think is the greatest gift we are ever, ever given by God. And when I got here, I certainly didn't know it was from God, but I'm telling you that this was the greatest gift I ever had. And I really wish you this. I wish it to you now. I wish, I hope you had it. I hope you hang on to it, because that to me is the, you know, it's the only thing I've done. I've got smart. I'm not graceful. I'm not a lot of things. But this thing was given to me, and for some reason or other, through God's grace, I believe, 
I held on to it. And that gift is the gift of desperation. I was desperate. And because I was desperate at that point, at the beginning of February in 1964, I was surrendered. I, you know, I didn't surrender. I don't surrender. I don't, I kill it. I mean, I kill it. I stomp on it. I grab it by the throat. I shake it until it says yes. I don't surrender. I was surrendered. And there's a huge difference in my life. I mean, there's a huge difference. And it, desperation doesn't just occur when we get sober from alcohol, you know, just stopping drinking. It occurred, it has occurred for me through every single character defect that I have. Every single one. I have to be desperate in order to get to the point where I can turn it over, you know, let it loose. I just, it's, Continuing sobriety, um, to get sober when you're desperate and down and out and have nothing and, and you know, don't have a single better idea because that's where I was. I had not one single better idea is a gift. After that, we also have choices and we have gifts again with more desperation in our character defects and all of us have been there. There's... To me, there is no brilliance in my staying sober in this NAA. The idea is this. It's hard to stay here. Because this is the light of harsh honesty shines in Alcoholics Anonymous. And to stay here when there are all these mood-changing people in our meetings is tough. And, you know, that in itself, that that ability to stay here is a daily thing. That's why we only have to do stuff a day at a time. Because to stay here, when old Mr. On and On and On, not, not Cliff, but <laughs> old Mr. On and On and On is on and oning about whatever it is that he's on and oning about, or the district committee doesn't see that you know truth, or, you know, you're jail coordinator doesn't get the list out to you in time and this sort of thing. You know, those are the kinds of things that we need on a, on a daily basis to come. You know, we face life. Life happens. And what would we do when we drank? Drink. And life disappeared. You know, it just eased on out. And today, you know, we face life on life's terms. And it's not always easy. And so I need to be in the game. Um, I like this analogy. I'm an artist, and I like seeing things in pictures. And I like word pictures, too. And Cliff just, you know, he, he just evokes all these pictures for me. And uh, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in February the 4th, 1964, AA was the last door before the window at the end of the hall. And thank God I didn't have to jump out the window. Because I was close. And I know all of us are. Those of us who get here are just six feet away from jumping out that window. But the door of AA opened. And you know, there's a wonderful, wonderful poem um, that was, I think Shoemaker might have written it. 
but it's called I Stand by the Door. And what this poem says is, you know, I am not a person who goes into the great cathedrals of religion. Rather, I stand by the door to welcome those who want to come in. And I have always, my sponsor right off the bat got me, as soon as I would look up from the floor, <laughs> he got me into greeting people, you know, and, I, and I'll say something about that. But to greet people at the door of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is one of the greatest service positions that we can have. Because the last thing I wanted was to be touched. The last thing I wanted was to feel something because I was so afraid of my feelings. And, uh, I mean, these people, you know, they just kept, it was all teeth and eyes, you know, they were like <laughs> coming at me, you know, and it was, <laughs> but then, you know, this place, this Alcoholics Anonymous is a safe, well-lighted place. And we don't shoot our wounded. <laughs> now, there's a very practical reason for that. Why don't we shoot our wounded? Because we'd all be dead. <laughs> anyway, briefly, I'm going to tell you what I was like. Um, Tammy said, on Friday that she was like a Tasmanian devil and that absolutely was the way that I was. I was small, um, convinced I knew truth, mean, domineering, belligerent, and afraid. And being a rebel and a coward is a bad combination. <laughs> Especially when you're 56 pounds in the sixth grade, you don't have a lot of going for you. But I, as every speaker up here has said, um, I felt different. I don't know why, I just felt different. And I, I, Cliff used to say this, he didn't say it last night, so I get to steal his line. But I think the idea of this is, you know, when you're an alcoholic, you have this part in your brain, which is called, well, everybody has a part in their brain, called the medulla. It's this little black knot back here. It's the, it's the original brain. It's a, Brent would know about this. and It's a little wrinkled up black thing. The original brain. And in that original brain is stored every single piece of DNA that you have. All of your characteristics are shown. You know, your curly hair, your color, your eye color, you know, the whole, your proclivities, that whole, sort of thing. And in my medulla is this little blue gene that goes, party. <laughs> and that sucker is there today. Now, this brain resembles a lizard's brain. So if you ever get real big-headed, remember something. You're nothing but a lizard. <laughs> That'll bring us down, you know. You're just crawling up on the shore originally, you know. But I'll tell you what, when I get in a bad mood, my lizard wakes up. 
And uh, that's where that little blue gene is stored. And when I'm little, I felt different, and we all do, and I don't know why I don't care anymore. Um, but because of that, I, I kind of, I was kind of mad all the time. I was kind of ticked off all the time. I'm not swearing this is Sunday morning. I'm ticked off all the time. I was always, something was always bothering me. I never, you know, I didn't have the right this. I didn't have the right that. They weren't treating me right. Blah, blah, blah. So, and I would always put myself in positions of authority. You know, I would get elected to stuff. And so I got elected to this. Um, Cliff also says, this is why, so I hate talking after him because he reminds me of so much stuff. But he remembers standing by the freeway when he was a kid, watching cars go by and going, you know, shaking his fist at him. And that didn't even know him, didn't know him, you know. And that's the way I was. I was just like, get out of my way. You may, you know, just get out of my way. I was like a little tiny person in a small tank. And I had a gun inside my tank, you know, and I would like, somebody get in my way and go, with my little tiny gun, and then I'd roll over them with my tire tracks, you know, those track things on the tank. And people would shoot at me, but I'm in a tank. They, that's my protection. So there was this kid in the sixth grade, we had to take up money for the Berlin candy lift. There are people in here who are old enough to remember the Berlin Wall and the candy lift. We took up money to get candy bars for the kids in Berlin. And uh, there was a guy in our class who was like 640 pounds, at least. And he had this, he had little tiny shoulders, just about like this, and a little pipsqueak head, you know, this little tiny thing on the top of his shoulders, and this big, enormous butt, this huge butt. He looked just like a big avocado, you know, he's just this huge guy. And he wore white nylon shirts and blue jeans and white socks. And he had, wore high-water jeans. You know, they were about this far off the ground. And he wore tennis shoes with lightning bolts on the sides of them. And we called him Flash. You know, he was anything but a Flash, but he didn't like me. And I, he didn't bring his money in. Everybody was supposed to bring in a buck. He didn't bring his money in. And I, you know, because I'm this way and I know truth, we're supposed to have 100% in the sixth grade. And his name didn't have a little check mark beside it on my clipboard in my mind. So I said, you either bring that money in tomorrow or I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> I'm 56 pounds, but I'm mean. And he goes, whoa, I'm really scared. Well, he came in the next day. He didn't bring his money. I said, meet me after school. <laughs> so we were at Randolph Elementary School at Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And I remember it because it was a great experience. <laughs> I'm in the bushes outside the school. I'm waiting in the bushes. I'm no fool. <laughs> he walks by. I jump out of the bushes with what I hoped was a horrifying cry and landed on his shoulders, which were slippery, you know, because they were so short, small shoulders. And I grabbed hold of him like this, and I took this 
little fist, and I go, and I hit him right here. And, you know, that makes your eyes water really bad. And hit, but his nose started bleeding. And I'm way up high, so I just, like, rode him to the ground, all the way to the ground. And he's crying, and he's got bloody nose and everything. And I felt wonderful. It's just <laughs> wonderful. And I, when I read that part in our book, said, lack of power. That was our dilemma. That was it. I had power over this big jerk, you know, and I just wrote, and I got in so much trouble about that, because my dad was an officer, and his dad was a sergeant, and you don't do that. You don't. Well, I had to stay in my room for weeks on end, listening to planes take off and land, and take after school, because I got grounded. But years later, when I was doing my amends list, he was on it. And uh, so, you know, if I'm sure he's not up here because he would not come to cold weather because he's a wussy to this day. But if you're in the audience, um, Flash, I was wrong. <laughs> However, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Of course, I wasn't drinking on a regular basis at that point, but I was having little glasses of beer. I already had my first drink. My first drink was so little. I was so young. I didn't even know because I was a peckish eater. I didn't eat much. And so my dad, who's a doctor, would give me a little glass of beer like this. Remember those little free glasses you got with oranges around the rim? Those of you who remember well, you take, they had cheese in them, I think, and you take the cheese out and, you know, keep them and, he would give me a little glass of beer like that, and I would drink it, and I loved it. You know, I loved the bubbles. I loved the whew, feeling that he gave me, and I don't even remember when I took my first drink. It was very young. But as I went along and I, as I got bigger and I, you know, uh, began to have more life problems, um, I really began to drink, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I, I don't think I'd be an Alcoholics Anonymous if I didn't love the effect, at least. I wasn't necessarily crazy about the taste of some of it, but I certainly loved the effect. And as I got into high school, you know, I was skinny. I had I had no hips. I had no waist. I had I looked like a board out of a picket fence, you know. I just, And, of course, with that, personality that I had to go with it. You know, I wasn't the most popular person. I was always popular for debate teams and for um, ROTC sponsors and things like that, but I was not overwhelmed with people trying to beat a path to my door to date me, you know, because I tended to want to make people mind rather than anything else. And um, along about 13 or 14 years old, <clears throat> I took a drink, and my waist nipped in, and my hips flared out, and my boobs grew. <laughs> Just like that. It, it was magic. Magic. And I would end up in the back seats of cars with people like Bob Van Orden, who wanted to make me throw up on him. You know, he was like, you know, oh my God, I can't believe I was in the back seat with that jerk, you know. 
steaming up the windows. We never got to go to hotels. We had to go in cars, you know, with steamy windows. His sister tells the story about the time I was in the car with Howard Moore in the hospital parking lot, and she came over there with a flashlight and shined it in the back seat to see what we were doing. And I told her when I got home, I'd kill her. And I got home, and she was lying in bed in our common, we had, I stayed in the same bedroom she did, and she was lying there in bed, and she had her hand down on the floor, and she had a football helmet on her head and a baseball bat in her hand. Like she really thought I was going to kill her. And so I loved, I loved drinking. I loved it. I loved it. And, and I was willing to pay the consequences at that time, just like I was willing to pay the consequences with Flash. I was willing to pay them because of the, uh, because it was wonderful. And there isn't an alcoholic in this room who can't describe that as well as I can. It just made everything right. The problem with me was I had no recognition of the God within. He's always there. I promise you, even though you don't maybe think so today, or the last time a bad experience occurred. But God is always in us. He's always there. It's just we lock him up. Or I locked him up like in my little tank. He was, I was afraid to trust. I was afraid to have that feeling. I was afraid to love. Cliff said it last night. I was afraid to love. Alcoholism is a prison where the key is on the inside. I'm like this. I'm locked in. And God, the higher power, whatever you want to call him, is extremely polite. I think he waits to be asked. And I couldn't ask. I was just unaware, afraid, had all those characteristics of alcoholism, low self-esteem, an excess of arrogance. My sponsor used to say to me, my sponsor who died a year ago, and I'll talk about that at the end, she used to say to me over and over again, and it took me lots of years to get it through my thick head, an excess of arrogance is a deficiency in self-esteem, Peggy. An excess of arrogance is a deficiency in self-esteem. Oh, I get it. I'm arrogant because I feel less than. But it took me years to figure that out. Anyway. So here I am, this setup. I have no God. I have all these low self-esteem. I have arrogance. I mean, I think I'm presidential material. I make all these really good grades. I get selected to go to Europe to be in this interpreter school. And then I go on to spy school, you know, and all this kind of stuff over there. I mean, I did all those things. And yet inside of me, I used to always think, and even today once in a while I'll think, if they ever came in here, and really found out that I don't know what I'm doing. You know, they throw me out of my job. They can't. I own the company. But nonetheless, <laughs> I get that feeling. You know, do you ever feel like you're just sitting around in the morning waiting for a grown-up to show up? I mean, that's, that's the way I feel. It's like, wow. I mean, you know, how old are you anyway? Three? Yes, sometimes. Some mornings I am. So, anyway, you know, here I am. 
set up for alcoholism, got the blue gene, got the low self-esteem, got lots of arrogance, got everything on the outside is looking good, everything on the inside is just falling apart. Can't, you know. And I got over to Europe and, man, I had to drink them. They spoke foreign languages over there. I had to <laughs> go and catch up with them. And I, uh, I, you know, I was going out with this, we were talking about this at dinner the other night, I was going out with this guy, I was really drinking by now because, you know, when you get, I'm like a tube of toothpaste. You know, whatever's inside of me, when you squeeze me, that's what you're going to get. And if it's anger, you're going to get angry, you know. And when I would drink, it would, ah. And so I was doing a lot of drinking over in, in Europe. And uh, I was going out, we were, I was going out with a guy who was, um, he was actually, I had a lot of boyfriends. <laughs> I was trying to figure out which one it is. The Swedish one. The Swedish one was the nephew of Ingrid Bergman. I went up going out with Gunnar. And he was a bad, bad drunk. So he was way, way too drunk to go out with me this particular day. So I ended up with a Scotsman. And we went to this, uh, we went to this, the 200th anniversary of the University of Geneva. And they had these tents from all the different uh, countries that were represented. And the United States had apple pie, fried chicken, and Coca-Cola. You know. And uh, we were supposed to dress in our native garb, so I wore blue jeans and a shirt and loafers and bobby socks and that kind of thing. Well, he had on his kilt because, of course, he's Scots. And uh, so he's a good drunk. I don't go out with people who aren't drunks, and um, he's a good drunk. And he and I uh, stole a case of wine from the Germans, my own, you know, original country, we pushed this case of Rhine wine out the back of a tent, went around outside the tent, dragged it into the bushes, and sat there for two or three hours just consuming bottle after bottle of this wine, waxing, political, or whatever we were doing, we were talking. Anyway, the last thing I remember, and this is true with a lot of my sexual experiences, the last thing I remember was walking down the street with a stick, flipping up his kilt. Because I had heard they wore no underwear under their kilt to keep the tartan swinging, you know. And, and like a lot of those experiences, that's the last thing I remember. I didn't remember anything else. And then I came awake in the middle of the night in a statuary garden or a cemetery. I've never to this day been completely sure. It's raining. And I'm with an Italian. <laughs> and he's speaking to me in Italian. And he's saying, I need to go to Mass in the morning. Oh, my God, what did I do? I mean, I still had on my underwear. I, was, I couldn't figure out what I had done, you know. But I, and to this day, I don't know. But he said I needed to go to Mass. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know. So, And I don't know how he got there. You know, I knew him, but I... He wasn't really my boyfriend, but he was a pharmacist, which was kind of good, you know, in case I ever needed anything. But he showed up and he said, you're going to Mass in the morning. So I go, you know, when you don't know, you just agree. So I just, mm-hmm. So the next morning he picked me up and we went to Mass. And I mean, it's like all this smoke and people ringing things and guys in dresses and... You know, they're 
singing stuff, and people are getting up and down. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Catholic. I don't know what I'm doing at a Mass. I don't, you know, but I didn't explain that to him, you know, that I was not Catholic. And I was sitting there in that church, and I remember this extremely clearly, because sometimes when I was really low, I would go sit in the church, because it gave me peace. Now, isn't that interesting? Here I am, an affirmed agnostic or an atheist, but when I want peace and comfort, I go sit in the church. Not when the service is on, but to sit down there and look at the stained glass and possibly listen to the organist practice or hear the music and see the colors and feel some peace. Because to me, that's, it's like that's where, I guess, I thought God lived in my own elementary sort of way. And um, and things just got worse. Uh, by the time I finished drinking, um, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. A lot of stuff went on. I was in California. I was went out with a guy that I called uh, Zorro. He looked like Father Sarducci. And... Uh, <laughs> On Saturday Night Live, remember that guy with the black cape and hat and everything? Well, you know, this guy, Zorro, wore a black cape and hat. And, and he uh, smoked dope, and I drank vodka under the eucalyptus trees out in California. Um, my liver gave out. It's as simple as that. My liver gave out. I was close to 25, and my liver started going. And I turned an interesting shade of squash color, you know, and I had, my eyes were brown and my hair was, two years before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sick enough to be here. And I've heard that a lot. You know, we, I'll tell you something, we hang in there, don't we? I mean, we, we hang in there. And I hung in there through the, have, have any of you, let's see a show of hands who had some trouble with their liver. Not too many of us. Well, you feel like you've been run over by a truck all the time. And I'll tell you, they say we don't have any willpower. It takes willpower to get up in the morning when you've been run over by a truck. And you ache, but we hang in there. I could do all kinds of stuff if I knew that at the end of the day or the end of the hour, or the end of whatever, there was a bottle waiting. It's like it would call to me and say, Okay, honey, you can do it. I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I got to, to D.C. and I was in terrible shape. And I took a job with the government. I had worked for the government before in another capacity. I won't talk about that. But I worked for, I worked for the government. And then I got a job with this... Uh, lobbying concern, the American Speech and Hearing Association, and this guy, they hired me as a receptionist. As it turned out, it was a drunken receptionist. I was their drunken receptionist, and um, I would sit at the door of this place and welcome people, and uh, the only thing I really did there while I was there of any consequence was they had an election, and uh, they had all these people that they were going to elect to their board of governors for this particular um, period of time, and 
I would open the mail and count the votes. But I'm a drunken receptionist, and I keep my bottle of vodka, which I was drinking by then, in the bottom drawer in my large purse, and carry it at the bathroom, drink, come back, drink, you know. And uh, so I'm counting up all these votes, and I had a master tally, and, and I'd get mad because... One guy was getting too many votes, and I'd feel sorry for some other guy over here. So I would just erase the votes and change them and put them over to this other guy. And I screwed it up so bad. I mean, by the, you know, I'm trying to be fair to this poor guy. I'm thinking, I'm feeling sorry for this guy because nobody's voting for him. So I just, like, moved all these votes over to this other guy. And one after the election was over, you know, they elected whatever, I just didn't show up again. I mean, I just flat didn't go to work. I just quit. So years later, this guy was on my men's list. Of course, his whole association was the American Speech and Hearing. I mean, it was all about people who were hard of hearing and who were um, deaf and also had speech impediments and that kind of thing. And so I'm telling my sponsor about this, and she said, well, you got to go back to the director. You know, you have to go to the director and make your amends. So I get myself all ready, and I go to this director. His name was Kenneth something. And I said, I'm so sorry, doctor something. Um, I was a drunken receptionist, you know, at your business. And you all had that election in 1963. And I rigged the election because I felt sorry for the blah, 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 you know. And he... He just, he, I never forget, he just kind of sat back in his chair like this, and I said, this is the important thing for whatever amends we make. What can I do to make it right? That's the hard part. You know, saying that you're wrong and you've done wrong is one thing, but then I had to, for all my amends, I had to do this. I had to say, what can I do to make it right? And he said to me, you know, I never forget his face. It was just a puzzlement. He said, you know what? I think God must have been in charge of that election because we had the best board of directors we have ever had in this organization. <laughs> he said, we got this building because of the guy that you gave all those votes to. It was amazing, you know, how God takes care of us. I had no clue, you know, Mr. Turnip, whatever his name was. I don't know. I just felt sorry for him, and he ended up raising enough money for them to build this beautiful building out on Wisconsin Avenue, and so I, so I, he said to me, I said, what can I do to make it right? He said, well, it is right, and I said, I know, but, you know, I got to do something. I can't go back to my sponsor and say, Mr. Dr. Kenneth says it's okay. She's going to make me do something way worse than you are going to ever make me do. You can bet, because I told him I was in AA, and you know the whole story. He said, I'll tell you what, in your meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you just make sure that if your group can afford it, that you have an interpreter for the people who are hard of hearing. And I've done that. And I continue to do that because it says in our book, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem, is the root, not was, not used to be, is the root of our problem. Today, Miss Piggy, 
The other thing that it says is that a kindly act once in a while will not suffice. So when my original sponsor, my first sponsor, gave me that task of seeing to it that we would get interpreters, I have taken her seriously. She never rescinded that order, and I continue it to this day because nobody ever told me to stop. And now it makes me feel good. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. And that's how AA works in my life, is I don't go to meetings because I have to. I go because I get to. I have the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have to make amends. I get to make amends. This that we are sitting in here is a privilege. This is not our right. And it's a privilege for me to be here. It's a privilege for me to be alive. It is the least I can do to do the deal. And for me, the deal is living in the actions of the steps, being in the meetings, going to four meetings a week, having a sponsor, sponsoring the people that I sponsor, going when I'm asked to go places, making 12-step calls. I want to tell you a really quick story. We're going to have, you know, we're, we're already in sobriety, but let me tell you this quick story. I have a friend in San Francisco who was sober a number of years, six, seven, eight years, something like that. And he was out working on his lawnmower, and um, he put some gas in his lawnmower, and somehow or another this thing exploded. And he was burned badly over his legs and, and, and his arms. and I mean, he was in critical care. And anybody who's ever been burned know how badly that hurts. And they, people, they have to um, debrade or they have to take off the, the dead skin. And it's a terribly painful process. Horribly painful. And, of course, he's in there and they're giving him morphine and they've got him doped up and he hates it. He hates the whole idea, but but he's in horrible pain. And every time they take him down to this, they scrub and they put you in water. I mean, it's just hideous. And I mean, he's feeling really sorry for himself. Plus, he's all, you know, morphine's a downer. You know, we don't want to go down. We want to go, yeah, you know, like this. Or, whoa, he's down like this. Breathe. We need you to come over here. We'll wheel you over here if you'll talk to him. No, I'm not going over there. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm feeling terrible. But you're the only one who can do it. You're the only certified drunk we got in the hospital. It's over. Come on. You got to go over here. No, no, no. Well, bring him here. <laughs> so they brought this guy over. You know, the guy's in restraints. I mean, he's really nasty. You know, he's. <laughs> Like you when you're drinking, <laughs> you know, he said, Wah. so my friend is sitting there, you know, and they say, but listen, you come and get this guy in 15 minutes. I'm done. 15 minutes. You come and get him. So they bring the drunk in there and my friend starts talking and 15 minutes, but the nurse came in and said, 15 minutes. No, sorry. Don't. He talked to this guy for three hours. 
And at the end of that three hours, he realized that he hadn't felt the pain. So he goes to the nurse and he says, Bring me everybody you got in here. <laughs> Bring me all the drunks. Anybody that comes in that even smells like alcohol, bring them to me. And they had told him he would be two months in the hospital, and two weeks later he got out. I mean, that's what we have here, people. We have the ability to override physical discomfort with our caring. It's what he said last night. It's about loving. It's about, I mean, I may not like you, but there's people I don't like. They're jerks in AA. Mood-changing people, but I love you. It's a whole different deal. And this is, how can we say, no, I'm not going to do this? How can we say, and I, I'm as guilty of it as you are, at least in my mind. Oh, my God, do I have to go to another meeting? Listen to him or her? Oh, my God, do I have to pick up and listen to that whiner again? She's going to be telling me about her credit cards one more time. She's done it again. You know, but I'll tell you what. This is our gift. When we were given the gift of desperation, I think something was asked of me. And I think God whispered in my ear and said, You want to keep it, honey? Use your gift. Help others. You know all about puking. You know about peeing in your purse. You know about that stuff. Now share it. One of the most powerful lines in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a little thing that says, Cling to the thought that in God's hands. Our dark past is uh, sometimes it's our only gift that we have to give other people. But we, I think, for me, and because I'll be sober 40 years, Next week, any of you under 40 years, for you, (laughs) your responsibility is to give it back, is to use that gift. Is Those doors in my God place long since opened. Long since. And it's like this big white place. You know, when Brent was talking about struggling with his decisions and how he's coming out of this and after the death of that patient. It, it made me think about something. I, in sobriety, I met and married my husband, and we had a child, Jim, who's now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 15 years and married to another member of Alcoholics Anonymous who had two kids who at least one of them is probably going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But... Um, you know, when when he was talking about that tragedy, I had a baby that I carried a baby full term and it died in in the birthing process. And I was not prepared for that. But you know what? God doesn't he didn't do that. That's man's world. God doesn't do that. 
God supplies to me the power to be able to take something useful out of that and use it to help because this is our gift. And that's what I think that cling to the thought means. It, it means that I am responsible for using that. And I've had the privilege through the years of, of having going to women who have lost children and saying, you know, I know how you feel. I know I never I will never forget the desperation and the, the feeling I had after that. It was horrible. But because of you and because of my sponsor and because of all the meetings that I had gone to, I never blamed him. I just said, what am I supposed to do? And I remember going home from the hospital that, that day, and my mother was there to take care of the kids, and uh, because I had Jim, and we had Dick's kids from his first marriage. And she said, and I said, i got to go to a meeting, Mom. Can you stay with the kids? And she said, you have to go tonight. And I said, absolutely. This is the very time I must. And I went and I went and I cried for a year and all, you know, at night when I go to bed and stuff. But I never blamed God because I had the God door open. I knew it was grace notes. And I knew, you know, that he receives. And I knew that that little baby was, he had received him. He received him. Like he received your patient, Miles. And he received him. We're like out on the circle. <laughs> Sooner or later, we better go home. And uh, I'm not looking forward to it exactly. I, mean, I don't want to die or anything, but it's a great place. It's a happy I could have never said that. I didn't believe it. But I know now it exists. And they got AA meetings in heaven. And they, for those of you who smoke, they smoke. <laughs> That's what my husband says, at least. <laughs> and I'll be on, chances are, ashtrays or something, since I don't like smoking. Oh, jeez. But um, it opened my God door, you know. It it uh, it gave me grace notes, and and I, you know, all I've done is just show up and let it happen, you know. Show up and let her rip. Um, I'm an artist. I'm a person of passions, and um, I like to say they're passions. People say they're character defects, but I don't. <laughs> I like. I'm I'm a I'm a dichotomy I'm a human dichotomy, um, and and it's okay with me. You know, a, a dichotomy is just like total opposites in the same mind. And um, <laughs> I'm an artist, and I love football. That's dichotomous. <laughs> I I love to paint huge floral watercolors because. The way that you make a watercolor really special is to put the stuff in between, behind the object, and it brings it forward. Just like we do the work like coffee. 
and greeting at the door and all those thankless tasks. This is, this is like a glory job, you know, when you're up here doing this, but trust me, we're just AA members. We're just guys who, and, and women who have to go to meetings and we get to go to meetings and we get to be sponsored and we do the jobs and those are the things that we do in between. Because we're nuts too. Just like you. We have character defects just like you. And all those things are the stuff behind. And it makes the flowers and the buds and the colors jump out. Because I think what my higher power says is, honey, you're a study in contrast. And that's what makes you a human being and not a God. And um, so we get to do these things. We get to come to meetings. We get to sponsor people. We get to do all that. And I'm going to tell you a couple funny stories and, and then I'll quit. I got sober February 4th, 1964. I walked into a meeting at the Washington Cathedral, actually St. Albans Church, on the grounds of the Washington Cathedral in Washington, D.C. The, the cathedral wasn't even there yet. And, because uh, they fancied it all up. It was not finished and this was, and it was, I was in St. Albans Church. And, uh, there was a person meeting me at the door and they said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I personally believe that's one of the most important things we can do. It's something that was done for me. They shook my hand. We didn't hug in those days. We were so formal. <laughs> Men wore hats and overcoats, you know, and I dress up at the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous because I honor Alcoholics Anonymous. Not because I'm a, you know, have the clothes, not because of anything except that's what I was taught. And when I came in here, I made a deal. I had gotten here because I didn't have one single better idea. And in my desperation, I just took your idea. I did what you told me to do. That's a secret. That's what I had to do, is I had to do what they told me to do, and I did it. I didn't like it. I didn't act gracefully about it. I remember my sponsor, I got mad at her one time, and she said, what's the matter with you? You're mad at me. I said, no, I'm not, being the ever-truthful newcomer, you know, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. What's the matter? I said, you hurt my feelings. (laughs) I'm... Sensitive. <laughs> and she said, you, she was very similar. She said, you are not sensitive. You are a touchy bitch. <laughs> and I heard her. You know, I absolutely heard her. She said, go out there in the kitchen and wash cups with Crazy Frank. I don't want to wash cups with Crazy Frank. Crazy Frank's crazy. Scary. He's six foot six and he's crazy. She said, go out there and make conversation with him and wash cups. And so, or wash the cup. And when I went home, I thought, what can I say to him? So I went back in next time and I said, so Frank, must be nice for you being so tall. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? Because he's, you know, really. I said, well, you're a painter, aren't you? He said, Yes. He said, well, you don't have to use a ladder to paint the ceilings, do you? And he goes, 
You know, he wasn't nearly as crazy as I thought he was. He laughed, and he and I got to be the best cup-washing team you ever saw. We just pouring out there. And my sponsor said to me later, you brought out the best in Frank. I said, oh, thank you. You know, I was glad to do the favor for you. You know, that kind of the arrogance rises right back up. To, you know, our egos are just like that phoenix that crashed and burned. Man, they rise from the ashes every time, which is why we get to go to meetings, isn't it? And, you know, I met my husband. We married. Two months after I met him, I would not recommend it. He was sober less than a year. We had to call a sponsor in Texas and get permission to get married. The only reason he gave it is because I was sober a year and a half or something longer than he was. And so he gets, he has to bring my coffee to me every morning <laughs> because he's a newcomer and that's what they do. <laughs> well, he's a newcomer to me. <laughs> and we had no money. We struggled through the whole thing, you know, the, the whole AA thing. And, and our first Christmas, we had no money. He said, we'll just go to the Alcazan, you know. And I said, we'll just, you know, we sewed our pants our heads and we'll go to the Alcathon and give up self, you know, I go, you know, because I'd always had money and we had no money. We had eleven dollars. I remember that. Anyway, he he came home, said I brought a present for you. Boy, I was instantly mad. Not grateful, mad, because I didn't have anything for him. So he goes in the bathroom and two minutes or less later he laughs knowing him. He jumps out of the bathroom and he goes He's dark naked, and he's got a big red bow tied, you know where, and he goes, here comes Santa Claus, Santa Claus. Now, how can you stay mad at a guy like that? He's been my running buddy, he's my friend. He's a little grumpy. He calls him Mr. Grumpy, but he's a got a heart of gold. He's got a heart of gold. He really, he really does. He said, he said to me, I said to him not too long ago, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I said, honey, I'm not very romantic, you know. He's the one that brings me roses and stuff. I, you know, I always go, it's gushy, it's too gushy. Anyway, he brings me roses. He brings me lace handkerchiefs. I mean, you know, he's just very romantic. And, uh, I said to him, one of my weaker moments, I said, honey, I really do want to grow old with you. And he looks at me and he goes, you already have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, he's older than me, though, so... As he says, don't you feel old age creeping over you at night sometimes? Because the older you get, the more sex is a spiritual experience. You know that. You know, the thing you always want to say is, oh, my God, it worked. (laughs) That's spiritual, isn't it? (laughs) I can't believe this is Sunday morning and I've just brought up sex. I'm sure God will be okay with that, don't you think? Well, anyway. So I want to leave you with this because I really do think laughter is God's music. Um, I went through the steps. I have a, my sponsor of 27 years died 
a year ago, the 1st of January, and I loved her, I loved her, I loved her. She knew me so well. And I've had a hard time finding somebody who's sober longer than 40 years and to sponsor me, you know, because they're, they die, you know, and, <laughs> or they can't hear, uh, or something. But, um, Cliff said that's the kind you want, is the can't hear. But, um, but I, I'm talking to a woman on the East Coast that I, I was talking to Pat and Cliff this weekend that I made the decision that that's, it's going to sponsor me, but I call her every week on Wednesday, and uh, I have another friend in Denver I've been calling at the same time. But at any rate, you know, I, I really believe that I need to be accountable because I'm still an alcoholic, and, I, and I'm still self-centered, and, all, and I still have feelings of low self-esteem from time to time. And, and from time to time, you know, I doubt the goodness of the world. And I, uh, it scares me. I get scared. And that kind of thing. And I, and I just go to, you know, when I call her, when I call old Jean, you know, she'd always give me some, some practical direction to take some, something. And I, and I loved her to death. And she, on her deathbed, uh, I took her a 40 year medallion because she was gonna have 40 years and I didn't think she'd live to see her sober birthday. So, um, we took this and I leaned on the bed. I put my head on her shoulder, and I took her little hand, and I opened it, and I said, this is your 40-year medallion. I thought you might want to have it. And um, one of the nurses put it on a, a chain around her neck. And there's a, a friend of ours, Father Schwartley, who's a great friend of AA, and he had seen Jean when she came. Well, he saw her and sent her to AA 40 years before. These are the kind of relationships that we get to have here. 40 years of peace. And he was with her when she left. Anyway, he's really funny. He's a weightlifting priest. (laughs) He has these big biceps and everything, you know, and he came in and he said, what do you got that 40-year medallion on? You haven't been sober 40 years. And she looked at him with those dagger eyes, you know. She couldn't speak, but she was like that at him, you know, because that's my sponsor, you know, mean too. And uh, he said, if you die before your 40th birthday, I'm coming and taking that medallion from you. She died at 5 o'clock in the morning on January the 1st, which was her 40th birthday. And she didn't last because the kids got there. She lasted because she wasn't going to give that medallion back to shortly. <laughs> I know. And, uh, oh, you know, we had, anyway, I, a couple of, I do think, she made me laugh. She was such a, she was the, first woman in the, the District of Columbia that reported that she had been raped. Years and years and years and years before. And she stood to public ridicule. And all kind, she was a brave woman. She was an artist. Don't you just know? And uh, she was also one of the first women that the FBI hired to do the hand-drawn 
10 most wanted list pictures. Back when they had just artists doing She was a very accomplished woman, and I love her a lot, and I honor her, and I will always try to use her name, Old Jean. So we called her Old Jean. Anyway, I want to tell you that I, she made me laugh, and she made me cry sometimes. <laughs> she made me mad sometimes. All things a sponsor should do. And uh, uh, I believe that laughter is God's music. And that's why I like to laugh on Sunday morning, Saturday morning, Saturday night. Who cares? I love laughing. I love laughing because I think it cleans out your pipes. You can't possibly feel sorry for yourself when you're belly laughing. Now, you can feel sorry for yourself a minute after that, but you can't feel sorry for yourself when you're belly laughing. And I appreciate that. And I want to tell you this one last story and finish with a thing, because I, I really love my spiritual. I love, I, I never thought I'd love saying I was, I felt spiritual. I never, I was on a plane going to Chicago one time to speak at the St. Patrick's Day thing. And these two girls got on the plane with me, and I, I'm always busy flying the plane when I'm on a plane because, you know, I'm never quite sure about the pilot, you know, and I'm always listening for differences in the calibration of the engines and stuff, you know, like this. And so these girls, so I'm doing that, and I'm doing my crossword puzzle. I multitask, which is another way of saying ADD, you know, here's multitasking. Anyway, so I'm sitting there, and these two girls get on the plane, and they both get shots, I mean, two little bottles of the complimentary stuff, and they down them just really quick. And they were just chatter, 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 chatter. And then it got really quiet. And the one girl said to the other, I feel so spiritual. (laughs) I almost turned to her and gave her my card. (laughs) I said, whoa, yeah, that's what I did, too. That's how I felt spiritual. Anyway, funny things happen to me. Funny, funny things happen to me because I think they're funny. You know, before I would have thought not, but I think they're funny. I'm in, I get asked to speak at the International. I'd never been asked to speak at the International, the one in Minneapolis. And I was very nervous because they give you 15 minutes on a topic. That's it. I had the best. 15-minute talk planned you had ever heard. I mean, I had my topic. I had it down. I I was going to wow them in Minneapolis, I'll tell you. I was going to really, I was just into that, you know, ego. <laughs> so I get up in the morning, go in, take a shower in our little suite, and I realize I left all my potions and lotions out in the other room, and so I go to open the door. It won't open. <laughs> I turn the lock and it's like, ah, it's not opening. It just goes round and round and round. Say, what? What? So I get out Dick's Medicare card, you know, and I think, I'll slide it down there like they do in TV, you know, and get that thing open. Nothing. Nothing. I get out the toenail clippers, try to pry the thing off. Nothing. I, he's asleep in the other room. And I don't want to wake him, he's old. You know, he needs his sleep. So finally I go, fram, fram, like this on the door. He goes, what? And if you knew my husband, he, I said, I'm locked in the bathroom. That's the morning I'm supposed to make the talk. Oh, yeah. He goes, what? I said, I'm locked in the bathroom. And I can just see him, you know. 
he rolls his eyes. He rolls his eyes at me a lot. And I said, I really am locked in the bathroom. So he gets up, comes over, I hear him padding over his little feet. He tries to get a boom, he bang, nothing, nothing. So he gets on the phone and he calls the manager. Now, it's like 6 o'clock in the morning. Manager comes up, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I have naked. I'm naked. I have no underwear in there. I have no nothing in there. Nothing. Just me, boobless with cellulite. There I am. <laughs> Just standing there. So I back up. I mean, I have done everything. I've crammed on the door. I've jiggled. I've, I think he's going to have to get tools to get the door off, okay? So I'm standing back here. Just like this. Arms folded, you know, in my waiting position. <laughs> and he wiggles and, you know, and he goes, wham, on the door. Nothing. So I kind of relax a little bit. And he goes, wham, and the door swings wide open, you know. And there he is, and he says, good morning, madam. <laughs> I'm like, and it was funny because the rest of the weekend he couldn't, he couldn't meet my eye. I see him in the classroom, he couldn't meet my eye. But here's the, here's the real kicker. Here's the, here's, here's God's sense of humor. You don't know what my topic was? Freedom. <laughs> God says, honey, you go right ahead and have your little ego trip. I'm going to lock you in the bathroom. <laughs> then you will know all about freedom. Isn't that funny? I mean, isn't that just, that's just God's sense of humor. I think he gets tired of all the tragedy, and he says, I think I'm going to go to an AA meeting. <laughs> I think they're funny. <laughs> anyway, um... I would like to end with one of my stories. I've got a million of them, as you can tell. Um, there was, and many of you may have heard this, but it is so AA. There's a man walking on a beach. And I love this story because I'm an artist, and I love the colors of the beach. They're turquoise and teals and peaches and pinks and beautiful soft mauves and soft tans and just fabulous greens and blues and um, this man was walking on the beach, and there had been a storm the night before, and it had that misty quality that it has after a storm. And he noticed as he was walking that there was the, the sand was just littered with starfish, hundreds and hundreds of starfish. And as the man was walking, he noticed in the distance, in the mist, he saw another man, and he was picking down, picking up something and throwing it back in the ocean, making a throwing motion. And as the guy who was walking got closer to the man who was throwing, he noticed that the man was picking up the starfish, one by one, and throwing them back in the ocean. And the man who was walking said to the man who was throwing, what do you do? And the man who was throwing said, I'm throwing them back in the water. They can't live up here. the man who was walking said, but what possible difference can it make 
there are hundreds of them. And the man looked through and said, Oh, but it makes all the difference in the world to this one. So, let's all go out and make a little difference to someone. Because you've made a huge difference to this one. Thank you.